By now, you know we are wrapping up quickly our study of the book of James, and although there are still two more verses at the end of this book, uh, verses 13 to 18 this morning are really the, the end of a very practical epistle. The last two verses are so important for the life of a church that I didn't want the message mixed in, so I decided to parse those out. So we will finish our study of James next week and then actually conclude with a reflection service on the 19th. Uh, Like most of the New Testament epistles, uh, James ends with a common structure. Uh, It's called the the prayer. It's a request for prayer or a reminder for prayer. If you're familiar with your Bibles, books of uh, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, book of Hebrews, they all end in the same kind of manner. It's very common back then to end an epistle with a request for prayer. Now, James, however, is unique in its detail and length that he... uh, goes on about prayer, and actually James uses what's actually a very common uh, letter-writing convention in antiquity, what's known as the prayer portion. He actually uses it to further one of the main themes of his entire book. In, In other words, as James concludes this letter on spiritual integrity, he reminds his readers of the important role of prayer in expressing, uh, in increasing, and solidifying the very integrity that he's been writing about the whole time through. Uh, to get a picture of what I mean by this, ask yourself this question. These six verses that we read, that Jeff just read to us, is the main point of these verses prayer or sickness? So, Actually, we don't need to look at that slide right now. You don't need to put that up there. We can hold off for just a second. Uh, Is the main theme prayer or sickness? If you just went on word count, then you would think that the main theme is prayer. The word prayer shows up seven times. It happens in every single verse. Conceptually, however, you might think that this topic was all about sickness because it's sickness that drives, seems to be the driving motivator for prayer. So then, is this passage a passage that's both about sickness and prayer? Well, that pretty much is obvious on first read, but believe it or not, that is still not James' main point that he's trying to broadcast in these six verses. As we've learned so far, James's overarching theme in the book, in this epistle we've been studying, is for Christians to be consistent for Christians to reflect Christ through and through, to not be half-hearted, but wholly committed to the Lord, to be so unified in practice, in word, in deed, regarding their faith in Christ, that they would be like the God they worship, totally whole, unified, one. Now, here's the amazing thing. Remember, James is constantly making the case that Christians ought to reflect the God they serve, and one of the unique ways that James has been doing this is over the very character of God himself, the essential being of God. And like there may be different aspects of these individual lives, like there are different aspects or different persons in the Trinity, Christians ought to live such integrated lives that they are one, just like the different persons in the Trinity are so integrated that they are one God. So to make that clear for you, we have obviously different elements of our lives. We have a vocational aspect. We have a leisure aspect. We have a financial aspect. But our belief in Christ, our understanding of the Christian worldview is so integrated, so holistically uh, combined with every aspect that we are an integrated whole. We're not living one way on Sunday and every other way, every other day of the week we live some way else. 
not just the, there's a spiritual component of our lives, but when it comes to our finances or our worldview or our economic understanding and all these things, we're totally different. What James is saying is, like God, where there are three persons in this one being, we have very different aspects of our lives, but all of it's integrated so that we are one and the same. Sickness then, it actually becomes an, an illustration in a physical way of James's point. Now, what is sickness when you think about it? Certainly, sickness is not death, but sickness is neither the fullness and ability to enjoy life in all of its vitality. It's kind of an in-between. It's not one or the other. Sickness, James is capitalizing on this, it's kind of like the double-mindedness he's been talking about, but only physically. You're not healthy, but you're not dead. It's something in between, and it's not very pleasant. It's in this broader context that James is actually talking about prayer. Prayer will express the spiritual integrity of the Christian. That's his point in verse 13. In verses 14 and 15, it can help increase that integrity through repentance and accountability in the body of Christ. And then verse 16 Prayer can solidify that spiritual integrity as Christians experience its powerful working in their lives. So let me give you the outline here. We can put that on the screen behind me. Um, so this is the outline of these six verses. You can see that prayer is always the answer. That's the driving theme. In, in verse 13, it expresses faith. In verses 14 and 15, it actually can increase faith as prayer is used as a means to repent of sin and have accountability in the body. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then there's second section, prayer is always the answer because it works. And that's the point James makes in verses 16 to 18. So that's what I mean, that it solidifies faith. Now, we're going to leave that slide up there for a while. Uh, and just kind of a heads up. Normally, when I give you the introduction, you, you should know by now that I give you the outline and we follow the outline through the text. That's not how this is going to work. This was a very challenging passage to understand, and we'll get into that in a little bit. So I'm going to leave that up there, even though I'm not going to refer to this much at all today. It's very unusual, but we're just going to leave that up there for so if you like to take pictures of it, you can. Now, we have talked about a Bible study technique, and if you've read your Bible long enough, you know this common technique that whenever you're reading a passage, it's helpful to find the key word to understand what the author is talking about. And often the key word rises up simply because of the frequency of its usage. So obviously I've mentioned prayer appears seven times in these six verses. It appears at least once in every verse. So while this passage intends to teach us more than prayer, it doesn't intend to teach less than prayer. Does that make sense? So the main point may not be prayer, but it's certainly not less than prayer. And, and notice how James kind of gives us just three ways we ought to be praying all the time. Look at verse 13. As individuals, we should be praying. In verses 14 and 15, the leaders, the elders of the church should be praying. Verse 16, everyone else in the church should be praying. So the first question we should ask by way of application as we study this passage is, I mean, you can guess it, are you praying? Is praying a part of your life? You know, I was reading through the Pew Research website on Thursday, just to kind of, there's a survey on prayer in America, and I found two very interesting facts. Among the 35,000 people surveyed, two things came to the surface that was very revealing. Number one, People who pray the most tend to be 65 years of age and older, 
And number two, the more money people make, the less they pray. So as a pastor, for me, I'm hoping you all get older and poorer really soon. That's just a takeaway from that passage. Do you pray? Are you praying? Do you have a plan? If you are a Christian, do you have a plan to pray? Do you have a place you like to pray? Do you have a partner to pray with? Do you have a plan? Do you have a place? Do you have a partner? The more of those you have, guess what? The greater the likelihood that you will be someone who prays. I think we can say correspondingly, the less of those you have, there's a less, lesser likelihood that you will be someone who prays. This is something that's so assumed in the Christian life, but so many of the things we assume and we quickly lose. So let me give you three reasons, if you haven't thought about it, why we should pray. Number one, prayer expresses our trust in God, and it's a means by which we increase in our faith. At the very basis, prayer is a way of express, expressing, Lord, I can't do this, you can. Lord, I'm not aware of this situation, but you do. Lord, you are God, you know you're supreme, you know all the factors and variables in this situation. I don't, I'm leaning into you. It's an expression of our dependency. Right? We're, as Adam said, we're not autonomous, friends, we're not. And that's a good thing. God has built in physical limitations into our lives to point us to our need of Him. Friends, just very obviously, I can't even go three hours before I realize my need for food, right? I can't go 24 hours before my need of sleep becomes very apparent. Physical limitations are not in and of themselves bad. They are, if you want to believe the cultural narrative that you are autonomous, but prayer reminds us we are dependent beings. Number two, prayer brings us into deeper fellowship with God, and He loves and delights in our fellowship. Ask any parent of a young child what is their greatest delight is when their child, full of excitement, wants to tell mom and dad about what is exciting them. God delights to hear us pray. God delights in our fellowship. We need to always remember that. Because we know we should come before Him. After all, He's sovereign God, but He delights in that fellowship. Third and finally, through prayer, we as creatures can be involved in activities that are eternally important. Friends, prayer is not the booby prize for those of you who can't do real ministry. Prayer, through prayer, every one of us can take part in eternal matters. How significant that is, how a leveling of the playing field this is, that through prayer, you and I, as finite creatures, can have an impact in things of eternal value. These are just three quick reasons we should be praying. And James just assumes that there's this praying going on in our culture, and he talks about it, right? There's individuals should be praying, the church leaders should be praying, everyone in the church should be praying, but he doesn't just talk about the three types of people that should be praying. He also lists three situations we should be praying. Are you suffering, he says, you should be praying. Are you cheerful? Well, then you should give praise, which is another form of prayer. Are you sick? Get others to pray for you. All this is in verse 13. James, in effect, is covering the whole spectrum of emotions and situations in our lives, from our trials and temptations and our sufferings and difficulties to our joys and victories and blessings. And he says to pray because this is an expression of faith in just the general affairs of your life. 
get all that in verse 13. So the first lesson we get from these six verses is easy enough to grasp. Prayer in the general affairs of our lives is an expression of an integrated faith in Christ. So things are tough. You pray. When life is good, you pray, you celebrate God. In every, God, every aspect of your life, there's this Godward orientation when it's good, when it's bad, and everything in between. You are coming to the Lord because you recognize that is in whom you exist before His presence, and prayer is an expression of that. But then in verses 14 to 16, it gets a bit tricky. <clears throat> Let me read it to you once again, because this is a very difficult passage, these two and a half verses. Verse 14, James says, is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, because of this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What makes this passage tricky is this overlap of the concepts of these terms, saved, sick, healed, raised up again. There are two issues that we need to address when we read this passage that so much of us are familiar with, and a lot of the way we apply this is when you're ill, you call the prayers of the elders of the church to pray for you, and you ought to do that. We, we actually wish that you would do that more. It's a blessing to us as elders to pray for the people of our congregation. But the two issues that we need to address here is, number one, what does James intend to teach us about healing? And number two, why the close association of sin and sickness in this passage? All right, so number one, let's look at it for one at a time. First, what does James intend to teach regarding healing? So notice in verse 15, the very first portion of it, James states that the prayer of faith results in the sick one being saved. What's challenging is that every time James uses the word saved, every time he's used it in this epistle, chapter 1, verse 21, chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 4, verse 20, and chapter 5, verse 20, we're going to look at next week, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 12, every time he uses this word saved, it is always in regard to spiritual or eternal salvation. But it's clear here in our passage that's not what James intends, but James intends to use it regarding physical healing. So this is just a really odd use of the term here, along with this very ambiguous phrase, the Lord will raise him up. If you read the Gospels, the phrase, the Lord will raise, him up, raise you up, was always in reference to the resurrection of the believer to their eternal reward and righteousness in Christ. Although there are times that that same phrase is used to physically describe someone who's ill that's been healed by Christ, that they were physically raised up. So, for example, in John chapter 11, when Lazarus died, the sisters come to Jesus and says, our, our brother has died. And the Lord says, don't worry, your brother will rise. And uh, Martha, or is it Ma Martha says, Lord, I know he will rise up again in the last day. There's that expression that the Lord will rise someone up in the resurrection. But then we get Mark chapter 2, where Jesus heals the paralytic and says to him, rise and take your, your bed with you. The point I'm getting at is that phrase, the Lord will raise him up, is used in terms of the final resurrection as well as physical healing. 
So verse 15, what we have is James is deliberately mixing these categories of salvation and physical sickness, and it's hard to understand what's going on exactly. In verse 16, he continues this odd mixing of categories, but now, if you notice, he's linking confession of sin with healing. Okay, so you look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins on the basis of what he just said in verse 15. Confess your sins to one another, and you will be healed. Now, there's also that phrase, and pray for one another. That, core, that, that uh, and, that coordinate conjunction is simply saying, you do these things, and this will happen. But the point I want to get at is he zeroes in on praying as a, res- a confession of sin with your healing. That here's the challenge. What is he referring to in that healing? Is he talking about physical healing, or is he talking about spiritual healing or something else? because the word is used both. Now, don't freak out. We do the same thing in our culture. I'm not trying to shake your confidence in what you're reading here. I'm just simply saying language is elastic. So, when a doctor says to you the patient is healing just fine, what do you think? You know immediately the context. If the mayor says the community's healing just fine, what do you think? You're not thinking there's a thousand people on beds with IVs out on La Paz Avenue here, right? You know what that what he means is that there's some kind of rift and now there's a healing taking place. They're using the same word, but why is it when the doctor says it, there's an immediate context that's very different than when the mayor says it? See, the point is our words, this is the beauty of language, have this range of meaning. And James is deliberately weaving in and out of these kinds of physical, spiritual issues of physical healing, spiritual healing, sin, righteousness, all this stuff. It's a very challenging couple of verses. Here's what I think to make the best sense of what we're reading here at James. The many uses of the words that James is using, like save, heal, sick, raise up, indicate to me that James has in mind both physical and spiritual realities that are being addressed within the church that he's ministering to, and by takeaway application can do the same for us. So the way he uses these terms and the construction can either can give an understanding of either or to not be too dogmatic when it comes to healing, nor too dismissive when it comes to healing. What do I mean by that? So don't be too dogmatic. There are those who will read this passage and say, see, faith always heals. That's just the way it's got to be, and it's a matter of how much faith you actually have. And then there are those who are too dismissive. They say, well, faith never heals. The reality is what James is saying, God can do what He wants as He wills. He's deliberately mixing these terminology so that we don't kind of say, it means every time we pray, someone has to be healed, but He doesn't want us to not go to Him in expectant prayer as well. So He mixes these deliberately. My friends, somewhere in our prayers, we have to find the balance between never expecting God to heal miraculously and always requiring him to heal on demand. Now, for some people, try and find an exact definition. What does, it seems like it, it depends on a prayer of faith. What does that mean? We don't know. James never unpacks it in his entire epistle. The closest he gets to it is in chapter 1. You probably don't remember this. Let me put that verse on the screen. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, James says this, Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. That's the closest we can get to what he means by a prayer of faith. It is just this not doubting. Now, someone's going to say, see, it says it right there. So every time we pray, someone should be healed. That's not what's going on. 
We need to balance chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, with what James taught us in chapter 4, verse 15. You remember that. James says this, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The point James is making is that everything we desire is in fact contingent upon whether or not it is God's will to do something or not. See, in some people, that, that is not a contradiction to have a prayer of faith, but also trusting that the Lord wills because we are having absolute confidence that if God wants to do this, He will do it if it is in fact His will. The takeaway, friends, that James wants us to know that we should pray with faithful expectation that God desires to raise up those who are sick. We can have that confidence when we pray, but pray knowing that God often has plans for our sickness and intends them to further His will. And that's so countercultural to a culture that is averse to suffering of any kind. But friends, when we look at Scripture, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul says, to keep me humble, God gave me a thorn in my flesh, and three times I asked him, take it away, take it away, and the Lord said, no, that in your weakness you are made strong, and my grace is sufficient for you. By the way, the weakness that Paul referred to there is the exact same word that James transla is translated as sickness here. It can mean a weakness of physical constitution or moral or emotional, beaten down and wearied. Titus chapter 3, verse 20, Paul had to leave his partner, Milet uh, uh, his partner in Miletus who was sick, could not get recovery. He was just ill. And finally, John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, Jesus said it himself, look, this man's disability, this man's, this man's position in life was not because he deserved it or anything his parents did, but he is what he is for the glory of God to be revealed in him. So James wants us to realize when we pray for the sick, pray with expectancy, but also pray knowing that God often has a plan for our illness. And so he uses these terms that mixes them mixes them up, mixes those categories. So that's the first thing. Secondly, why does James deliberately then link sin and sickness in this text? If you're paying attention, James closely associates the forgiveness of sins with a prayer for healing. He does it twice. Here's where I want you to follow me on. I think James is actually referring to people who are truly physically ill but also in light of James's overall context of kind of double-mindedness amongst God's people, James's urge, James urging the sick to call for the elders is precisely because this may, may, not must, this illness may be a matter of spiritual discipline as well, and thus the need for the Christian leadership to be a part of this. In other words, these individuals due to their double-minded lifestyles, have become ill and thus need both prayer for healing and repentance from sin, which is why James combines both of these concepts in one single section. Now, let me give a caution here. What the Scripture and what I am not saying, I am not saying that there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between our sickness and sin, okay? That is patently false. We've made it very clear that oftentimes God will use sicknesses for His purposes. 
So we do not want to have this idea that Scripture teaches that sickness is a direct result of sin. I want to be clear on that. What I think Scripture does teach and what we can say is there can be and there are at times connection between certain sicknesses and sin. For example, when, when the former is a discipline from God for the latter. So let me use some illustrations that if you've ever had family or friends in, that had this situation, you understand what I mean. Kidney disease as a direct result of alcoholism, right? Euphemies, uh, what's the lung thing? Emphysema, thank you, as a lifelong pattern of nicotine addiction or cigarette smoking. Sexually transmitted disease as a lifestyle of sexual promiscuity is probably a very obvious one, right? If you read any academic or medical journals, there's a new category called lifestyle diseases that are actually becoming known that are diseases as a direct result of an individual's lifestyle choices. My point simply is, now I've used some pretty extreme ones, they're probably even more commonplace patterns of living that are directly having an impact on our health. The point simply is, there can be lifestyles of double-mindedness, let me use sexual promiscuity as one of them, that are so contrary to God's will. And if you engage in that lifestyle, there can be physical consequences thereof. I think that's what James is dealing with here. So in this context, repenting from this double-minded lifestyle as seen in them calling for the elders of the church for prayer, and this makes absolute sense of this whole context of James' overall message and this particular context of why health and the promise and forgiveness of sins are all put together. Does that make sense? And so that's what's happening in our text. This understanding makes the most amount of sense of the expression where James says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Because he's accounting both for the physical reality as well as the spiritual consequences for that physical reality. And this then sets the stage for what he writes in verse 16 an ongoing confession of sin and prayer for one another in the larger community of saints is going to result in a physical healing because lifestyle changes are taking place and spiritual healing because they're no longer vacillating, wavering between God and their own personal idolatries. So you see, this is why James sets that up. He's understanding that individuals are living certain lives, they have consequences. Bring in the elders to pray for that. Follow this pattern, it will be a blessing to the entire community. Which is exactly why, in verses 17 to 18, James jumps into the illustration of Elijah the prophet. Now if you don't know the story, let me explain it to you briefly. Elijah the prophet was a prophet of God that he had raised up during a time in Israel's history under King Ahab and Queen Jezebel when, when Israel was being led astray into rank, idolatry, and forsaking the Lord. It was a time of massive spiritual adultery and double-mindedness in the time of Israel. Elijah has a showdown with the king and the queen and all of the false prophets, and in 1 Kings 18.21 says this to them, and let's see if it sounds familiar. Elijah asks, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. This is James' exact message throughout his book, isn't it? If the Lord is God, then follow him. 
Stop vacillating. Stop pursuing God when he gives you what you want and then pursuing the Baals or personal idolatries of your life when they give you what you want. You cannot have a foot in either camp. It does not work that way. James is saying, be single-minded in your devotion to the Lord. That's the same challenge that Elijah threw down to the nation of Israel in 1 Kings 17 and 18. Now, if you're reading the text, you might be saying, well, wait a minute, though. He doesn't say anything about that. He's just talking about rain. He's just talking about a prayer for rain. You're exactly right. It was Elijah's prayer to stop the rains that elicited the showdown between Elijah, the prophet of God, and all the false prophets of Baal. James uses this narrative because in this single narrative, it combines effective prayer while challenging double-minded sinners to come back in their devotion to God, which is exactly what verses 14 and 16 are about. Again, are you praying? And are you praying about the things that matter? So now Elijah, the use of Elijah, the point wasn't to use him as his great miracle worker. That's not the point. The point was to illustrate his praying. And James says, look, you might know Elijah as his great prophet, but he's like you and I. But when he prayed for the things that mattered, there were some results. I'll never forget, um, it's 2013, maybe some of you, uh, this went all over the internet, went viral, so maybe some of you know this story. Probably the most brilliant marketing campaign of, of any airline. It was, a, it was a regional airline in Canada, WestJet, I think it was. And uh, there was a flight uh, between Calgary and Ontario, but what was so ingenious was, this is a run-up to Christmas, they had a, like a, a, a virtual Santa box with a screen that whenever passengers checked in, they would scan their boarding pass, and on the screen would appear a live actor playing Santa. And he would ask, so what would you like for Christmas? Was this all this kind of fun way to kill the time before you got on your plane? And so you had kids asking for Thomas the Tank Engine trains, and people asking for iPads. One family asked for a big, large screen TV, you know, goofing around, and, and one guy asked for socks. What the passengers didn't realize, though, was behind the screens, the employees of WestJet were writing down all the information of which passenger requested what, and in their, where, they arrived, where they were flying to, all the employees, while they were en route, went to the malls, bought everything that was asked for, wrapped them up, and when the people got off the jet and went to the baggage claim, all they saw was a bunch of gifts, beautifully wrapped, coming down. And the camera, the, the, everyone was per, like confused, what the heck's going on? And as they looked at the gifts and saw their names, they realized these were the gifts they asked for. So they started opening it up, and it was this amazing uh, this celebration as they couldn't believe they got what they asked for. So there was a guy with a kid with a Thomas the Tank Engine, some kid with an iPad, a family had a camera, and the guy the, and then the overlarge, uh, oversized baggage came out with a widescreen TV. It was amazing. So because of that, I mean, these guys got publicity and goodwill like nothing any commercial could have done. But after the warm kind of feelings of it went away, and then maybe this is my cynical nature, but I couldn't help but think, the guy that asked for socks feels like a sucker right now. <laughs> I mean, how is he feeling with his like, you know, Hanes tube socks, and this guy's got a widescreen TV, <laughs> you know, and this guy's got an iPad, and he's got socks. If he had only known, if he had only asked, if he had actually believed and asked, he could have got a widescreen TV. Instead, he got socks. Elijah 
reminds us there is a power in prayer, but he also reminds us that it's in a particular context, praying for double-minded people, people to come back to God. In other words, our prayers, friends, have power when they are prayed in line with God's purposes for what he intends. That's what he means, that the prayer of a righteous person, he's not talking about a saint, he's not talking about someone extra more righteous. A righteous person is anyone who's in Christ. The prayer of a righteous person is effective because they are praying in alignment with God's will. The more we are shaped by God's grace in Christ, the more we have a longing for the honor of his name and for his kingdom to expand. We can pray effectively. That's what he's getting at. Friends, how are you praying? How are you living? It matters. One last thought about prayer, probably one of the most important thoughts here. You need to know you're being prayed for. I don't want us to end this message on what you can do, what you need to do. I want it to end on what Christ is doing and what Christ did. You're being prayed for. I hope you're praying. Yes, your, your gospel-centered prayers are effective in changing this world, but that's only because Christ himself is praying for every one of us. Do you stop and think about that? Maybe your prayer life is not what it should be. It's a good chance that that probably applies to most of us. It's not what it should be, and it can be better, but we need to recognize first that someone is praying for every one of us. Hebrews 7.25 says this, consequently, he, speaking of Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. He's talking about the tabernacle that was on the earth. But Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Finally, Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed, he is interceding for us. Paul's point was, look, no one can condemn you, not even yourself, why? Because Christ himself stands making intercession for you to God. Friends, yes, we would love your prayer life to increase, but you need to know that Christ is praying for you. You may not have anyone in your life praying for you, but Christ stands on your behalf, interceding on your behalf. Wouldn't it be nice to know what he's praying for? I'm sure he's praying for a lot more, but John chapter 17 gives us a glimpse We know that he's praying for at least four things for us. He's praying that we would persevere in our faith, that we would not lose hope. He's praying that we would be united in him, that our lives would have a joy centered in him and the gospel, and he prays for our sanctification. How do I know this? Let's look at John chapter 17. Verse 6 to 26, Jesus is praying for his disciples and for all who will believe because of what they say. This is what he says in John 17, 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, Father. Keep them in your name. He's praying that you would persevere, which you have given to me, that they may be one, unified, even as we are one. 
John 17, 13. But now I'm coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He wants us to have his joy, a Christ-centered joy, a joy to do what the, God, what the Father commands. And last and finally, he's praying that we would change and grow. He's praying for our sanctification, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As James concludes his book, he wants us to recognize the importance of prayer as it expresses our integrated life of faith, as it increases our life of faith and solidifies it because it's an effective, effective and powerful means to grow in our relationship with God. As I pray, I want us to recognize we are, as you can obviously, celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. And if you're new and you've never celebrated the Lord's Supper, we do it a little bit different. Uh, there's going to be servers up here in a few minutes, and you can just walk down the aisles and grab a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup. Uh, and, and they would just love to bless you in the name of the Lord. If you have kids uh, and you don't want them to partake, they will pray for them. We'd love to pray for your kids. Um, as we do that, there's gonna be some time for you to just be right with God, so you don't have to rush down here, take your time. If there's sin that you know about between you and the Lord, or between you and someone else, deal with that before you come down. This is open to anybody who's a Christian. If you are a believer, you may even attend another church regularly, you're welcome to partake of it here, if you are welcome to partake there. The only thing we ask is if you're not a Christian, to not partake. Because this is what this is saying is, I am taking of the life and death of Jesus. My life is sustained by his life and death, right? He lived the life I should but don't, and he died the death I should but won't. If you can't say that, then please don't partake of this. Watch. This is what Christians have done for 2,000 years around the globe as we commemorate who he is. Let me just end with prayer and we'll have the servers come on up. Father, we thank you for the reality of what James has been writing to us about prayer. And Lord, so often in our busy, frenzied world that we just don't take the time to develop and grow in the quietness of prayer. But Lord, as James is instructing us, it is an expression that we are living lives that are integrating the things we understand about Christ. It is a way we can increase our faith. It's a way that we can solidify our faith. I pray as a church, we would be a praying church. That we'd be a praying church for one another, for other churches, for other Christians, for those in this world. And Father, we pray that as we pray, we are reminded that we do not pray alone, but that our Savior intercedes on our behalf before the very throne of God. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.